Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics, always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We are fortunate to have both Dr. Paul Carson of North Dakota and Paul Sieslak of Oregon returning to Dr. Doctor to talk about something besides COVID. They're going to talk about their specialties of infectious disease and public health. Because public health has been in the forefront of the news for so long, we may have forgotten what other things it helps to do. And the good doctors, Paul, will help us understand the role of public health from a Catholic perspective. So, Chris. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say the phrase public health? Sexually transmitted diseases. Why is that? (laughs) That's just, you know, in my way of thinking as I think about medical school and residency, whenever we heard from anyone who had public health attached to their name, it was always about HIV. Uh, Of course, that, that that was the pandemic, if you will, of the moment. Yes. Uh, I went to medical school in the late 80s. And uh, that was really when we were seeing HIV really get a strong uh, foothold, if you will. And uh, anytime we said public health, it was it was either HIV or it was some other sexually transmitted infection. Uh, that's a good point. I was in med school at the same time. And when I even went to public health meetings, when I was working in infectious diseases for the military, that was one of the big things they talked about were sexually transmitted diseases. And I came across the the offensive term of commercial sex worker, which we have uh, demolished in a previous episode with a survivor who was a victim of human trafficking. Now, the other thing that comes to mind when I think about public health experts, and of course the Pauls are exempt, but they are always these uber smart people that spoke in a way that I could never understand when I was a medical student. They were brilliant statisticians. They tore studies apart when I thought I'd figured something out. And so I always shied away from them because I, I couldn't keep up with them. But our Pauls, for as all of our guests know, have, are gifted with the ability to make the complex understandable. Amen to that. I mean, they're even explaining it to the two of us. So there, there, what more <laughs> proof do you need? Why do you think public health is an important topic for our listeners, Chris? Well, because we're all part of the public, right? I mean, it, it is the public health. And look where we are. We're, we've made it through almost and and finishing a global pandemic, a a public health crisis. And suddenly everyone has become an epidemiologist and a statistician and an expert (laughs) on study design. And unfortunately, those in the media have have not. Um, And to understand the difference between a peer-reviewed, double-blind, randomized study and somebody's letter to the editor has, <laughs> has really caused a lot of pain and suffering during this uh, pandemic. So I, I think that's a slow pitch question, really. Now more than ever, we need to all understand what public health is and isn't. You know, over three years ago on one of our shows, the medical trivia question asked about what two numbers will most accurately predict your life expectancy. And uh, they were a five-digit and a three-digit number. And those numbers are your zip code, and your credit score. And you know, there was a fascinating study from New Zealand that uh, about credit scores, cardiovascular disease risk, and human capital. And they found that high credit scores were related to uh, a lower Framingham heart age. So your age might be younger than you know the number of birthdays you have if you were really healthy. And what was fascinating, high income was not associated with a lower risk, but high credit score was. So it's fascinating. And these are public health type things. These are not things that happen in a doctor's office or in an operating room. And they get into this idea of uh, the phrase social determinants of health, which is a strange phrase. But in fact, our zip code can explain more about our health than our genetic code. That's a little scary, depending on what your zip code (laughs) is. Um, But according to some of the research in the World Health Organization and others, some 20, 22% of health outcomes are attributable to our genes, and we can't change those. But it leaves 78% that we can change. And uh, starting from low to high, 7% is due to our environment, our neighborhood, our air and water, tobacco exposure, crime, crowding. For instance, in New Orleans, the average life expectancy for babies born to mothers in different neighborhoods of the same city can vary by as much as 25 years. 
And 11%, uh, shockingly low to most listeners, is attributed to medical care. That's a bit of an insult to guys like us uh, that we're, we're only making, we're only having an 11% impact. Um, but that includes distance to care, availability of providers, insurance, language barriers, uh, and et cetera. And then 24% has been attributed to social circumstances, like the support of families and friends, uh, how many relationships you have, or if you're lonely, your income, how educated you are, your occupation, and involvement in, in religious care, which we have discussed earlier this year, the uh, how religion plays into health. Now, but I get the last one and the biggest one, 34%. That's the biggest chunk. It's due to individual behaviors. Wow, you're responsible. Uh, psychological <laughs> well-being that includes life satisfaction, conscientiousness, optimism, stress, anxiety, depression, all the bad things, physical activity, sleep, and yes, diet. And we're going to see how public health plays into a number of these things outside the realm of genetics and what happens in a doctor's office. But Tom, before we move on to the medical trivia question of the day, we want to be sure to invite our listeners to attend the 2021 Annual Education Conference of none other than the Catholic Medical Association. We believe that our medical professional colleagues and students are aching to reconnect in person after a super abundance of online and virtual meetings. <laughs> this year's topic is the joy of medicine and the conference will be held at the family-friendly Caribe Royale in sunny Orlando, Florida, October 7th through the 9th. It's an amazing facility. All the rooms are suites, lots of room and fun for all sizes of families. Our keynote speaker will be the inimitable former Swiss guard and now dean of a business school, Mario Wenzler, who will use his, his incredibly humorous wit and deep insights to share stories about the joy of his former boss, St. John Paul II. Now, it's true this, the conference is really geared towards physicians, nurses, students, and other professionals. You don't have to be in medicine. You don't have to be Catholic. You don't have to be particularly intelligent or attractive even. Um, but it really is designed for those who may have lost some of the joy in their professional lives, and they're looking for a way to get it back. And even if you don't experience a deficit of joy in your medical life. You know, getting together in person with like-minded colleagues from around the country will certainly energizes you the way it energizes me. We think that you're going to be so moved um, in the medical profession and to enjoy the faith and the fellowship and the formation of this conference that for the first time on record, the Catholic Medical Association is offering a special type of money-back guarantee. Chris, for the first time, the Catholic Medical Association is offering a rebate, a refund of the registration fee, 90% of it, for an annual meeting. This is in honor of our 90th annual meeting being held October 7th to 9th in Orlando, Florida. So if somebody attends their first ever annual meeting, whether or not they're a member, and they do not think they grew in their faith, fellowship, or formation, they will receive a 90% refund of the conference registration fee. Yes, countless people have become hopelessly addicted to the Catholic Medical <laughs> Association after coming to one of these annual conferences. So if you're thinking about attending at all, please check out the CMA's website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. And before we go to the break, I will pose our medical trivia question of the day. Category, how many doctors? Question mark. So, in 2019, the Association of American Medical College published data about over 936,000 physicians active in 47 different medical specialties. Since we're talking about public health, I wanted to find the closest number we could come up with as a proxy for how many public health physicians there are. Now, there is no specialty called public health here, but there is something called preventive medicine. There's significant overlap, probably gives us a good idea of how many public health doctors there are. So, there is one of the 47 medical specialties called preventive medicine. Many of them are involved in public health. What percent of physicians or how many out of the 936 active physicians, 936,000, proclaim preventive medicine as their specialty? As usual, you're going to have to wait till the end of the show after the interview for the answer. But we'll be back with our scintillating interview here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with our great interview at least it's going to be great, with Paul Carson and Paul Cieslak about public health. How and why is it so important? 
Paul Carson to review. He's a professor, Department of Internal Medicine at the University of North Dakota School of Medicine and Health Sciences. He's also a professor in the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University and director of the NDSU Center for Immunization Research and Education. And he has been, continues to be a consultant to the North Dakota Department of Public Health and the governor's office for this current COVID pandemic. He has four children and he's married to a radiologist. Paul Sieslak lives further west in the United States in Oregon. He also is an infectious disease specialist and he works full time for government. He's medical director for the Oregon Public Health Division's Communicable Disease and Immunization Programs. He also, like Paul Carson, sees infectious disease patients about monthly in the hospital. Uh, he is married to a Oregon native and has six children and lives in Northeast Portland. Paul and Paul, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Great to be with Thanks you. Thanks for having me. Okay, oh. we'll go alphabetically. Paul Carson, <laughs> how did you get in, interested in infectious diseases as a specialty? Well, I think the uh, one of the short answers is, is that the people who uh, oversaw me in my medical training uh, thought I was pretty terrible with my hands and uh, should not go near anybody with a scalpel or a suture or any kind of... Uh, <laughs> device that might uh, put a hole in them. And so I had to stick to things that just used my brain. But uh, the, the, uh, the other piece of it was I really enjoyed um, some of the things about infectious disease that kind of were like, you got to deal with a lot of medical mysteries where you kind of had to sleuth your way through it and try and figure out th these fevers of unknown origin. And I really liked the fact that you worked with all organ systems of the body. So you worked with, you know, and you worked with all kinds of specialists. So I had all kinds of colleagues that, you know, I was working with all kinds of, you know, problems throughout the body that you're working with and often, you know, mentally challenging problems. And Paul Sieslak, what's your story? I, I think I came to it in, in a rather unusual way, which is uh, during second year med school when uh, I was studying microbiology and infectious diseases uh, at the same time. And I had really never been introduced to this kind of thing before. And I just got totally jazzed by it. Uh, maybe that is a testament to how nerdy I am, but uh, I just <laughs> loved learning about these bugs. And uh, and in particular, I think I'd like, they each seem to have their own history and geography and sociology about them. And, and I really kind of got into all that uh, broader aspect. Yep, that's amazing. Well, you, Pauls, have been on our show so often that many of our hosts might think you're co-hosts. Many of our listeners might think <laughs> that you're co-hosts. We and our listeners can't thank you enough um, because you really have put a face, at least a radio face, on public health during during this pandemic. But if you will, what's sort of the big picture purpose of public health, population health, so to speak? Uh, help our listeners understand that. Well, I'll, I'll start by saying that uh, instead of taking care of a patient, we, we see our job as, as taking care of a population. So, um, you know, instead of uh, measuring your blood count and your serum chemistries, we're looking at uh, disease rates across a whole population. And uh, because of that, you know, most of the most people in a population don't have any given disease that you're talking about. And in particular, in the realm of communicable disease, public health, uh, our interest is not so much in the people who have the disease as it is in uh, protecting those who don't yet have the disease, but might get it if you don't, uh, if you don't figure out how to prevent it. So prevention is, uh, is really the, the key to the whole thing. So Paul Carson, you know, Paul Cieslak was was nerdy. You might have been nerdy too. I don't know. But what was it about what he just described about public health that made you want to devote your career not just to infectious disease, but specifically to public health? Yeah, it really kind of, so infectious disease as clinicians, we do interact probably more than the average doctors with public health. You know, it has, it, epidemiology takes its name from, you know, its original origins of epidemics. And so, you know, infectious disease clinicians would often get pulled into, um, you know, uh, public health uh, um, management around epidemics. But for me, uh, as I worked my way as a clinician, I got more involved in various administrative things, including uh, for a while, I was the chief quality officer of our healthcare system, which was really trying to improve population health. So I said, you should change my name to population health director and, or, you know, chief population health uh, um, officer. And what I, what I really was intrigued by that uh, was that you're pulling really big levers. So I had kind of an epiphany one weekend on call when I was, you know, taking care of, I think, 
literally my fifth or sixth diabetic foot infection. And, mm. and, you know, infectious disease doctors take care of a lot of these. And, and it was literally the fifth or sixth person I was seeing where we're trying to save their leg and fighting a losing battle where they're very likely heading towards amputation. And I thought this needed to be dealt with 20 years ago, like in this person, like when, when their diabetes was first diagnosed, when their diabetes was, you know, first being managed, like we needed to be dealing with this way upstream. And, uh, as I started to kind of in the medical world, getting involved with kind of quality improvement things, I, I could see like when you made certain types of interventions, you affected hundreds or thousands of people in your health system. And I, I that really kind of jazzed me up. I, I, I thought, boy, this is, th these are much bigger levers I'm pulling than my individual interactions with, you know, my one-on-one -on -one patients with, which are very gratifying in their own right, but it's a different type of uh, gratification. Paul Cizlai, can you give us a story about uh, public health that will tell our listeners why this is so important and put some faces to the principles? Uh, you know, I one of the things that really got me jazzed about public health was reading a book, a history book by David McCulloch called uh, The Path Between the Seas about the building of the Panama Canal. And uh, it turns out that the French were trying to build the Panama Canal before the Americans tried to build it. Uh, and one of the problems they ran into was people were dropping like flies from yellow fever and they couldn't keep uh, an engineering group around to, to continue work on it. And then the Americans took over and they started seeing the same kind of problem. And uh, eventually the president sent a guy named William Crawford Gorgas, uh, who had worked with Walter Reed on the island of Cuba and they, they had figured out how yellow fever is transmitted. It's transmitted by these mosquitoes. And these mosquitoes were really particular about where they lay their eggs. And uh, so if you could stop the mosquitoes from breeding in that area, then you could stop yellow fever. And William Crawford Gorgas went down there and really made it happen. And, uh, and they wiped out yellow fever from the canal zone. And, and you just don't see it there anymore. Uh, it, it was a really impressive story and kind of got me jazzed about uh, the possibilities of, of public How health. did they do it? What, there wasn't DDT or something like that, was there? Oh, it's uh, a variety of methods. Um, first of all, uh, when he went into the hospital there, uh, he noticed that the legs of the beds were sitting in saucers of water. Well, why are they in saucers of water? Well, well, the ants crawl up the legs, and we found we could keep the ants from crawling up by putting them in a, in a saucer of water. Well, you know, that's stagnant water is precisely where right. mosquitoes like to lay their eggs. And so he said, get those out of here. Uh, you know, rain barrels, uh, open rain barrels. He would uh, cover uh, old tires that would fill up with water. He would, you know, make sure that those were gotten rid of. Uh, the story was told of um, someone being, a reporter being taken up to a, a remote stream and they had a little uh, gizmo set up where a little drop of oil would go into the stream periodically. And of course, the oil spreads across the water. And when that layer of oil is there, that thin layer of oil, the, the Anopheles mosquitoes wouldn't lay their eggs uh, in the water. Uh, you know, all of these things, there was fumigation. Uh, they did do, you know, adulticiding, as we say. Um, so a variety of methods, but they eventually got rid of the mosquitoes. So, uh, Government-wise, public health is probably run by the government more than any other organization. So what is the structure of public health within our country from you know, big picture to, to locally? Uh, shall I, Paul? <laughs> Yes, please. Yeah, you, you're living it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I want to say that pu public health is um, one of those police powers, uh, uh, as they're called, that, that the federal constitution reserves to the states uh, by the 10th Amendment. And the federal government really has almost no primary public health authority whatsoever. Uh, they do have authority over uh, disease on the high seas. And so when a cruise ship pulls into port with a lot of sick people, uh, that is a federal responsibility. Um, but, uh, you know, with that exception, with, with the exception of disease on navigable waters, it's a state-based function. And, and there are, you know, 50 different states and they all have different laws and they all do public health a little bit differently. Most of them have some delegation to local public health departments, either county-based and, you know, in some cases, uh, city-based. 
and uh, and and the authority flows uh, in that direction. Now, the federal government plays a huge role because in in the last uh, thirty years or so, uh, they've been funding a huge amount of public health and and communicable disease control. And uh, I regret to say that to to a significant degree, states have abandoned their uh, mm. their investment in public health, and and it's become uh, a federal government. The federal government pays for it. And then, of course, you know, he, he who pays the piper calls the tune. And so we're often uh, uh, acting on on what the uh, federal government is telling us we should be we should be doing with the money they give now, us. For both of you, you know, with that with that explanation in mind, what do you think this this pandemic has sort of taught us about public health that that may or may not be different post pandemic than idea between states and the feds and who's in charge and who's driving the bus? Well, I, I think one of the things that that was sort of eye-opening to me was just how much it unveiled that we really weren't prepared for the, the big one. You know, I mean, this pandemic really was sort of the next big one. And we've drilled on this. We've talked about these. I think, you know, we all thought, uh, I certainly thought that our Centers for Disease Control was sort of the premier you know, national public health uh, agency. And we just saw like uh, numerous inadequacies and failures. I mean, we, we, we weren't prepared to develop testing. We weren't prepared to have adequate swabs. We weren't prepared to, um, you know, our regulatory processes uh, and weren't, weren't adept and nimble enough to move things through in a very uh, rapid basis in, in the face of the pandemic. Our interdiction at our borders and so on was, we, we kind of found was not up to snuff. Our surveillance wasn't, uh, you know, a- adequate for, for a lot of these things. So it really, I think, exposed a lot of holes. Um, and and then we also saw something that I, I really didn't think would have been possible, which was the politicization of, of mm. public health, that uh, that it was prone to being, you know, manipulated in, in either sides by, by, by politics. And, and in some ways, a lot of trust, I think, was lost in that. And, and a lot of public health, certainly earlier on in the pandemic, you know, uh, got marginalized. Well, you guys do this on a daily basis. So when you're working in the realm of public health, what are you actually doing since you're not going from exam room to exam room seeing patients? Uh, you know, in, in my role, uh, I'm basically following the data and trying to use the surveillance data that we get. You know, every state has um, reportable diseases, diseases that uh, by law, physicians, laboratorians, hospitals have to report to public health officials. And I think, you know, most people will readily see the rationale for a lot of this. If you have somebody with tuberculosis, uh, you have not only a patient who needs to be treated, but you have a lot of other people who are threatened by it and, you know, may contract the tuberculosis if you don't do something about it. So uh, those diseases are required to be reported to public health officials. So uh, we're watching those data come in and looking for trends, uh, doing analyses, looking for blips and outbreaks and and trying to address them as they come up. Uh, but we get a lot of data that way. And uh, I, I I'm um, um, trying to use those data along with all of our epidemiologists here to develop rational public health policy, rational recommendations, you know, feasible, workable recommendations that people can do in order to uh, protect their health. And Paul Carson, what do you do that's any different than that? Um, so I'm not sort of in the trenches like uh, Paul is doing the actual sur- surveillance and, and you know, um, intervening on those. I'm, I, I'm an academician, so I'm teaching sort of the next generation of people that come to work under Paul. Uh, so I'm helping to, <laughs> to, to, to train them, um, budding epidemiologists and people who typically go off to work in state health departments and centers for disease control. And my, my focus on teaching is the management of infectious diseases and public health. We do research. So uh, in my particular areas, I'm, I'm interested in researching uh, what are the barriers to vaccination? You know, we, we think of vaccination in public health as being one of the greatest success stories of the last century, um, despite what we kind of hear around some of the you know controversies with it, uh, with the current um, vaccines. Um, and so we do a lot of research on uh, what are those barriers, how to overcome those barriers, how to improve those kinds of rates and and try different things to intervene there. And I consult with our health department. So I serve sometimes as a consultant um, to our state health department. 
Now, you mentioned teaching. Um, we see a lot of people that get a master's in public health or an MPH. We hear that all the time. Sometimes they're physicians, sometimes they're not. And especially now in the pandemic with experts on 24-hour news, but what is an MPH and who gets it and what does it take to get one? Yeah. So, you know, an MPH is uh, typically most often a two-year degree uh, that comes after an undergraduate degree. But we have, uh, for, for example, we have a number of physicians in our graduate program who take this. We'll, we'll see physicians get interested in this because they see the value of learning more skills on how to study population health and how to intervene at a population level. Um, you know, it, it, clinicians can see can see the value of that frequently and, and, and want to maybe get more involved with that. Um, I, I would say, you know, in the past, we'd get a handful of students that like, you know, they have an undergraduate degree in microbiology or some science, and they're like, what do I do with this thing now? And, you know, they thought maybe a health profession didn't, you know, go there or whatever, and they're, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And then somebody kind of points them in our direction. And they're like, yeah, I can do this. More now, though, uh, more now after, you know, COVID really jacked up our uh, the interest in our program. And we're, oh. we, we've had the biggest year ever of applications to an MPH. Uh, I think, you know, lots of people got exposed to public health and infectious disease management in a big way. And, and it's sparked a lot of interest. Yeah, I'd say between the, you know, the pandemic and the TV show House, your profession should be set for a long time. <laughs> We're doing better. Now, Paul sees like you supervise epidemiologists and um, who are they? What do they do? Why do we need them? Uh, well, you know, getting the getting the data out to answer the questions that we want to answer is not necessarily a straightforward thing. Uh, you know, it often requires, you know, quite a bit of, uh, you know, data cleaning. Uh, the, the data are being submitted by uh, scores of local public health people uh, uh, and, you know, the, they're at various levels of completeness and, and, you know, there are duplicate records and whatnot. And so a lot of times in order to, to do an analysis, they have to, um, they have to do a lot of data cleaning. Uh, then they take those data and, and try to, you know, put them in some graphs and, and charts to illustrate things. And I, I think of, um, epidemiologic analysis as putting something under the microscope and then slowly turning up the power. You know, we're seeing an increase in this virus and, and I'll start asking some questions. Okay, where are you seeing the increase? Is it is it throughout the state or is it in one locality of the state? Uh, well, it's in this region. Okay. Are you seeing it among all segments of the population? Is it is it hitting young and old or is it confined to certain age groups? Uh, you know, and, and based on those kind of things, you can you can start to make some uh, guesses as to what the causes might be. You know, when you start seeing a lot of communicable disease spread among uh, uh, young adult males, you start to think about sexually trans sexual transmission, uh, you know, and, and you can pick up on other clues. And then uh, that's just with what we call the descriptive uh, data, data by uh, time, place, and person. Um, you know, so we, we, we do analyses by time, place, and person. And then there's the issue of analytic epidemiology, which is trying to find correlations with, uh, you know, potential exposures, causative exposures, uh, so that, you know, that, that takes a little more creativity and what, what questions should we be asking about potential exposures and uh, to, to try to look for, um, for uh, a cause that you can do something about, you know, whether it's a foodborne cause or a, a animal exposure or whatever. And on that note, this is a great place to take a break. We're going to come back with how public health intersects with the Catholic faith here on Dr. Doctor after the break. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor with our very esteemed and familiar guest to our listeners. So uh, speaking of our listeners, Paul and Paul, how would the listener know if they've encountered something that has to do with public health? Give us some examples. Well, you know, when public health is working, you kind of don't even know that it's working and you, you may not really have an encounter, if you will. Uh, but when I think of uh, ways that it affects our, our everyday life, the first thing I think of is safe drinking water. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that, that has prevented just boatloads of disease across the ages. And uh, same with sanitation. Uh, a little bit more prominently, you know, there are the uh, warnings on cigarette packs. In uh, 1964, the Surgeon General man 
mandated the hazard warning and smoking started to go down slowly, but surely ever since 1964. Uh, cancer screenings, um, you know, that take place, breast cancer screenings, colonoscopies, those are, uh, a lot of that is um, driven by public health recommendations. And uh, I think you made a point in our pre-show discussions that we often notice it when it's not working. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, that, that's kind of our our uh, daily lament. So it's one of those things. You're punished when something's wrong, but when things are going right, you're you're not credited. And I think you guys deserve a lot of credit. Now, Paul Carson, you know, you're teaching MPH students, and you're probably quite aware that there are certain areas of moral challenges for Catholics in public health. What are they? Yeah, you know, there's a few that I, I sort of confront on a regular basis. So often talked about as, uh, you know, a, almost a pillar of uh, public health is, quotes, reproductive health, which we often know as a euphemism for things like, you know, contraception, sterilization, and abortions. Um, and I'll, I'll frequently have, uh, you know, a lot of fired up students who want to kind of do good here. And they, their idea of doing good is like passing out lots of condoms and, um, and you know, getting involved with, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, making contraception much more available to people. And we have, a, we things, we have also things that really try and de- diminish your risk of bad outcomes from promiscuous sex. So HPV vaccination, which I, I think is a very important thing to do, but it's you can go at that a different way. Um, HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, you know, public health gets very involved with that. That's trying to sort of prevent a natural outcome of, uh, of uh, promiscuous sex and so on. So one of the things, I mean, I, I think we have to acknowledge where some of these things do show you know, benefit quotes uh, from, uh, you know, maybe decreasing uh, certain risks. But to, to be fair, uh, you know, I don't think Catholics have to be afraid from truth with a big T. And so uh, I teach also about some of the very marginal benefits of these. So NIH uh, put out a big, uh, this was a couple of decades ago, about the efficacy of condoms, for example. They're, they're next to worthless for preventing HPV. They're barely of any value for preventing herpes simplex almost of no value for preventing syphilis, decent against things like gonorrhea and and HIV. But when I start teaching about this, I literally watch my students' jaws start to drop uh, (laughs) as they were like, they they sort of are like, but, but, but in my health class in high school and in college, we were kind of told I'm safe now. And, and I, I put to them, you know, given what you just learned about really lack of efficacy for a number of very important sexually transmitted diseases. How do you feel about this as a public health strategy? And how would you feel about this if you were to be talking to your younger adolescent sibling about to go to college or your future adolescent child? Would you give them the same advice? And I literally watch my students twist in knots trying to figure out how to answer <laughs> that. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of striking. But the and the reason that you know we are not in favor of them isn't really because of the efficacy. I mean, if there's something immoral, we right. we, we don't want to do that. So that that's a challenge in teaching in a secular university about you know the the moral issues. But I think often behind a, a, a lot of these moral issues is because it's a blueprint for how to flourish. Right? I mean, when you don't act in these ways, we don't flourish. And that manifests in the physical world, that manifests in the emotional and psychiatric world and mental health world, and it manifests in the spiritual world. So I can speak to the physical manifest, you know, physical outcomes of where those moral choices um, may ultimately lead. So bottom line with the, the condom question is, it doesn't help us flourish as humans. That's what I'm hearing. I, I, yes, I think you can make a strong case about that. So, Paul, we're, uh, we'll go back to Paul Cieslak, I guess. So how does the concept of public health fit into Catholic social teaching? Uh, well, you know, uh, an important part of Catholic social teaching is uh, is solidarity, is, you know, we are our brother's keeper and trying to uh, trying to protect each other. Um, you know, I 
looked up a couple of uh, Bible quotes before um, the, this meeting, <laughs> but uh, you know, Leviticus nineteen sixteen says, "You sh- no, you shall not stand idly by while your neighbor's life is at stake." Uh, we, we have the tale of the good Samaritan, and you know, uh, helping others. Uh, if you see your fellow Israelites' donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it. You know, you're supposed to be helping your neighbor out, and I think uh, public health is is a great example of uh, people trying to help each other. Yes, Paul Carson. You know, if I, I if I can add to that, one of one of the quotes I really like on this was by St. John Paul II. And he he speaks directly to the idea of solidarity that Paul Cizak just brought up. And if I can just read you the, this quote, because I, I love it so much. He says, solidarity is not a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people, both near and far. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. That is to say that the good of all and of each individual, because we are all really responsible for all. And I just think that's sort of a great, uh, almost a great uh, mm. definition of the goals of public health. And, and Paul Cieslak, you did homework and you found out an incredible quote about public health in the Bible. And I think it's worth listening to because God is concerned about public health, even through scripture. Uh, if uh, are you talking about the uh, the Old Testament yes. Jewish laws? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it, you know, let me just preface it by saying there, there's a lot of things that the Jews did that turn out to be healthy. But uh, I like this one in my communicable disease realm from Deuteronomy 23 verses 13 and 14. Outside the camp, you shall have a place set aside where you shall go. You shall keep a troll in your equipment. And when you go outside to relieve yourself, you shall dig a hole with it and then cover up your excrement. Uh, that, that's a lesson on how to prevent a whole lot of uh, diarrheal diseases. Um, and, uh, you know, they were doing it 3,000 years ago. And, and even Jesus. Jesus tells somebody to go to a public health officer. After he heals one of the men with leprosy, he says, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because the priest would say, oh, you're healed. You can now rejoin the community. So the priests also served as public health officers. Since then, gentlemen, they have separated those roles. So you just have the regular priesthood of laity, but you know, it's okay. (laughs) We're still a lot like them. When we've done other episodes focusing on different medical specialties, we like to ask the question, why does the world need more authentically Catholic fill-in-the-blank? In In this case, the blank is public health physicians. Why does the world need more authentically Catholic public health physicians? You know, I I think Paul Carson hit on it pretty well when he was talking about some of the moral dilemmas. I I will say that... um, you know, p- people who go into public health tend by and large to be not where Paul and I are, not, you know, faithful, believing Catholics. Uh, and they, they bring their own biases to the profession. I, I it, They have a very, very hard time saying anything untoward about, um, about free sex, for example. Uh, whereas, you know, mm-hmm. a Catholic would have no problem saying, you know, first of all, uh, uh, a monogamous sexual relationship will help you flourish more than uh, promiscuity will. And uh, it's multiple sexual partners is not good for your health. Uh, so so those those sorts of things are, are, are more consistent and, and arguments more easily made by, I think, faithful Catholics than they are by most people who go into public health nowadays. It, it's important to uh, to carry the moral context with you into your profession. And, and really, every profession needs that. And, and, you know, if I can add to that, too, you know, like Paul just alluded to there, you know, pointing out something that, for example, promiscuous sex or multiple sexual partners, we have actually decent research and data that will say, you know, what what will this lead to? Even if you take vaccines, even if you, you know, wear condoms, even if you do these other things. Another area that we've talked about on this show, um, one of the most potent social determinants of health is being in a faith community. If you don't have a Catholic, a faithful Catholic there, somebody kind of point. None of my colleagues in my health, my public health department, no, they were kind of shocked when I gave a presentation on this. Like, wow, I, I've never seen this research, never seen this literature. It's and there's a big body of it, and it, I don't think if you have someone who actually is sort of listening for these things that really attest to uh, a, a faith-filled life will help you flourish. Um, you're not going to hear those voices and have those truths uh, spoken. You know, we've spoken uh, with other guests about this, but we know medical students, especially today in the current culture, 
are choosing specialties are not choosing medical specialties based on some of their fears, rightly mm-hmm. and wrongly, about things that will they'll be forced to do. But what advice would you give to medical students or residents today that might have a bent towards public health and at the same time might be worried about these very things that you're talking about? You know, Chris, you might actually be in the best position to speak to this as well. Now, not maybe not public health, but you're, you know, in obstetrics and gynecology, which is really on the, you know, uh, forefront of a lot of the ethical dilemmas and bioethical problems. And I have a daughter who's training in that right now. I, I just want to say, you know, to young Catholics who are in, interested in medicine and healthcare, we need to be in every one of these areas. Mm. We can't be afraid. We can't shy away because we're going to. Um, you know, face difficulties or face even potentially, you know, persecution or lack of promotion, lack of tenure, lack of you know, and so on. I, I, we need these voices in all of these areas to speak that truth. And I, I just uh, really encourage people not to shy away because, because, just because there might be difficulties there. It's really important. And, and I think in any case, it's going to be hard to avoid no matter what specialty you go into. I mean, my wife's yeah. a, a nurse uh, in outpatient surgeries, and they're starting to do you know mastectomies as part of uh, so-called gen, uh, gender affirmation surgeries. Mm-hmm. And she's having to deal with that and face that. Uh, so there, there's no getting away from it. And, uh, and we certainly don't want to abandon the field to, uh, to, to people without faith. Yeah. I like the way both of you said that. And I think sometimes those students that are worried about it are probably the ideal students, uh, that we need to be out there on the front lines, uh, expressing and advocating for our patients and the faith. Well said. Well, back to public health and, you know, part of the joy of any specialty is healing, curing, preventing diseases, seeing people flourish. So what are some of the greatest public health victories of all time? If you had a Hall of Fame wall, what would be on there? Uh, Eradication of smallpox from the world. Mm. No question. Near eradication of polio, eradication of uh, congenital rubella from the Americas, uh, huge declines in diphtheria, uh, you know, mo- mostly uh, attributable to vaccination. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the non-vaccination victories? Uh, you know, I think safe drinking water and sewage uh, are, are right up there on my list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I pointed out, uh, you know, uh, putting folate in uh, a lot of, uh, you know, grain cereals as a supplement has, has almost eliminated neural tube defects. In the, in the United States and many parts of the world. I mean, mm-hmm. these are public health interventions. And who figured that out about folate? I don't know. But you <laughs> do. don't know. No, I should it know. It was that. recently declared venerable and has a cause for canonization. Oh, my gosh. Dr. Uh, Jerome Lejeune. Lejeune. Oh, my oh. goodness. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know yes. that. In fact, he's one of the patrons of this year's annual education conference of the CMA on the joy of medicine. And it's widely held that his position on abortion probably cost him the Nobel Prize. Yes. Yep. Uh, so, you know, yep. he, he was he remarkable was man, noble in his own way for the Nobel Prize. Very you know? much, yeah. Yes. Truly incredible. Now, let's get to something practical for our listeners. If you could recommend that listeners followed one public health recommendation today and tomorrow and the day after that, what would it be? You know, I got to put uh, uh, don't smoke right up right up there. Uh, there's just so many bad things that ensue from uh, people who are smoking cigarettes. Um, so I'll, I'll put that up there. Which makes sense. I had a patient today I operated on. He said, well, because I asked him thinking about whether to repair his nose or not, because smokers heal poorly. So I asked him, he said, well, I smoke about 50 a day, but I roll my own. And because of that, it never bothers my lungs. <laughs> it was just so remarkable. So I would second that. Paul Carson, besides uh, what Paul Cieslak said, what would you add? Uh, you know, vaccination in general, and I think timely right now, a COVID vaccine. Hmm. Yes. You know, be- before this pandemic, I think vaccines were not as much of a hot button issue. Yeah. Because like you said, they've been responsible for some of the greatest public health victories of all time. Yep. So if the world, instead of had a hall of fame, had a hall of shame for public health initiatives, what would be on that wall? 
Oh boy, you know, in in Oregon back in the 1930s, uh, eugenics was a big part of what the uh, public health mm-hmm. department did. Uh, so you know, that's that's right up there, and I think it you know it it probably cost a lot of credibility. Uh, wow. n- nowadays, uh, I would say, you know, I, I, I think we have not controlled sexually transmitted diseases with the methods that public health has been attempting to use. And I, I think uh, there's been an insufficient emphasis on uh, monogamous relationships. Totally agree. That, that's one of our big failures. STDs are exploding and ever, all the, you know, typical public health interventions have just really not made a big dent. Actually, in our first year of Dr. Doctor, we interviewed somebody who had worked with uh, Uganda on HIV and how they radically reduced it there through behavioral change and not through any of the typical public health measures. In fact, ABCs. it, got, it, yeah, it got better when the condoms left. Yeah. Uh, their HIV rates got much better when they started promoting monogamy. Their yeah. HIV plummeted. Um, yeah, that, that, so the, that ABC approach, I mean, it's been actually looked at quite a bit. So the A was abstinence. If you can't be abstinent, be faithful, be monogamous or be faithful. And then the C was condoms as the third. And that's been broken down. And the, and the component that they think actually played the biggest role was the monogamy, being hmm. faithful. Yeah. Not surprising. So gentlemen, in our last couple of minutes, what final thoughts do you want our listeners to know about public health? We'll start with you on the northwest part of the country, Paul Cieslak. Uh, you know, I, I would say it's it's a really worthwhile profession, and uh, there are really good things that can be accomplished for everybody uh, through public health. Um, but you know, li- like like every field, as we mentioned, uh, we need morally grounded people in it to to keep it on a, on a good path. And Paul Carson, you in the north central part of the country. Um, you know, I, I would just maybe point out to your listeners, it's been a pretty rough last year for a lot of people working in public health. They worked many long hours, uh, hard work. There was a survey recently of public health workers. Many of them were, were subject to overt harassment and, uh, you know, denigration uh, in, uh, over what they were doing. Um, so I would just say if you know anyone in public health, think about thanking them, telling them you appreciate them. Uh, because of these COVID and the divisions that followed, I don't know a group of people who had to work harder while suffering these attacks and disparagement over the last year. And almost everyone I know working in this area, they aren't doing it for like money. They're not doing it because <laughs> they want to control people. They, they do it because they really want our communities to be healthy. And, um, and I think they deserve a little bit of uh, recognition and thanks. Paul Carson, Paul Cieslak, thanks for being back on Dr. Doctor to talk about your chosen professions. We'll be right back after the break with the answer to the medical trivia question. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor in our final segment. You know it's time for the answer to our medical trivia question. And the category is how many doctors does it take to change? No, that's a different word. (laughs) One of the 47 medical specialties is called preventive medicine. And it might be a rough proxy for physicians who are involved in our topic tonight, public health. But how many of the almost 1 million physicians in the U.S. say that they're preventive medicine as their specialty, Tom? Uh, just under 6,700 or 0.7% of <laughs> doctors or one out of every 140 doctors uh, claims preventive medicine as a specialty. That's not very many. It's not, yet they have an inordinate impact on the health of populations. But, you know, what I would miss personally is, you know, you get some some joy as a doctor out of those one-on-one interactions. Uh, For me, I I would like a mixture of that, which may be why they still spend a little bit of time seeing patients. Mm, Sure. Well, for no other reason the one-on-one interaction. But, you know, the harsh reality is um, our two guests will have and have already impacted many, many more people's health than you or I ever possibly could. Yes. Accepting the reach of this good show that you're listening to now. (laughs) We should hope that we don't cause more harm than we we help. Uh, uh, Primum non no carry. First, do no (laughs) harm. So, Chris, in that vein, what are your top three takeaways from this episode? I mean, number one, uh, at the the global level, public health doctors are cool. Um, (laughs) At at least our two guests and everyone that I've ever known was. But in reality, or more seriously – 
they have the chance to impact, as I just said, health in a way that, that, that is really probably greater than any other medical specialty. They're not on the front lines. It's not always flashy and sexy on TV, but they really have a chance to do some great things. And what do you got number two? Well, there's a lot of great public health victories that uh, they're so great that we don't notice them. Uh, and I thought Paul like did a great job just rattling off some. But, you know, the eradication of smallpox, the near eradication of polio, yellow fever, rubella in the Americas, these are horrible diseases that shortened and devastated people's lives, and they're gone because of public health measures. And that's before you even think about the implications for clean water. Go somewhere on vacation that doesn't oh. have clean water. Uh, and come back and relish the fact that you can walk up to a water fountain in a department store in America and take a clean drink. Boy, do we take that for granted. And then rounding out your top three? Yeah, we need authentically Catholic doctors to pursue public health careers. We do. We need them to bring their, their Catholic social teaching and the wisdom of Holy Church to the table, so to speak, because uh, without people like that there, that part of the discussion is is just missing. You know, I like to say to people when we're talking about the evils of contraception, I can get you there with the theology, but I can also get you there with the biology. They're both important arguments, and I can give you both of them. And I think especially in the public health realm, that's really what we need. So don't shy away from this specialty, uh, young physicians and students. If you're listening, you need to think about this. Chris, that was beautifully summed up. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen anytime on their favorite podcast app. And we hope always you think this is good news. Uh, We enjoy (laughs) sharing it with you nonetheless. And be sure to rate and review our show. It helps other listeners find us. You can find this episode or all of our episodes at our website, drdoctor.org. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.